Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we never really did anything remotely. Um, I don't think it works with us. But we've been kind of on and off. It's been a bit less kind of consistently all of us this time around, um, both because of the situation, but also because I think creatively is an interesting thing to do. The first album was done over four years and it was a consistent, like everyone in the room for the whole time kind of thing. And I think it worked out well, but you know, we wanted to try to see how different clusters and different combinations will work. So that's what we've been doing now. So, you know, it's like two to three people at the time at Duke's house who's kind of engineering things now. So yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit more clustered, I guess, or fragmented. Have you learned new things about your songwriting from doing that and kind of doing these different pairings and stuff? Well, everyone, I think everyone's doing more with less people, if that makes sense. So I've been doing more things than I usually would do. So I like try to do some melodies, for example, which I never did before, play the piano a bit, you know? So I guess you're seeing that, you're seeing kind of like more of each individual person's fuller vision rather than the full vision of everyone as a, as a cumulative whole kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess you'll see more diversity in a different way in terms of songs in total rather than in, in each individual song, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, you kind of get a stronger sense of each person's individual personality, which in turn kind of makes the, the overall personality of the band maybe a little bit broader. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, so you had that with the first record as well, but it was much more subtle right so if someone who didn't know us and heard the songs they would just hear clusterfuck throughout right but we knew kind of like which individual voice kind of like does what kind of thing in each song but it was more of a you know it was happening all the time right so it was like six people shouting all the time essentially this time around it's more it's more like you know two to three people shouting at a time i think i guess with the first record you're kind of trying to figure that out a little bit as well in terms of the kind of process and stuff of it when you're kind of you're coming to terms with how you work best, whereas now you've maybe figured that out a little bit. You can kind of start to experiment and push things 
in different I mean, places and see how it impacts it. Maybe that's the kind of like, you know, optimistic or, or, or like the, the kind of like the Polish way of saying, I think maybe the real cause was just we couldn't do it because of, because of the lockdown, right? And because of different, you know, consequences of that. So we're in different places, we're doing different things. So I think, you know, that the real reason might be that, but regardless, it doesn't matter what the reason is, right? Like what matters is that things are slightly different now and that's exciting. What occupies your mind most that isn't music? I am a philosophy grad student. So I think about that all the time, I guess. <laughs> Probably more so than music. I mean, I kind of have to because it's, you know, kind of my job. Was that the same before you started studying philosophy? Was it very much something that was kind of, you know, when you were kind of growing up as a teenager, were existential things very much kind of, you know, moving around your brain? Yeah, I mean, I had like a few existential crises as I was growing up for like random things. I remember when I was like seven or eight, I just thought everyone was dead. Um, I was like, what does that mean? How, how, can I, how can I know that, that, that everyone is not dead? In the sense that, you know, dead at the time probably meant something like as conscious as I am or something like that. So, you know, I've been very bothered about these things in a very deep way for a long time. Um, and, you know, studying it hasn't actually helped with that. You don't really solve anything. You just, you get more worried and more anxious. So that's where I am right, right now. I'm, I'm in a pit of anxiety. I just use like more technical terms to describe it than I was when I was seven. I think that's the only difference. Do you come upon methods of kind of dealing with it in a day-to-day way where you can kind of be comfortable with it or? I mean, me personally, no. I tend to either, you know, take the stuff I'm working on either very, very seriously, as in like matters of, of life and death kind of thing, even though that might not necessarily seem like other people. Or I just, I'm not interested in it, right? So if, if something doesn't bother me to my core, then I just don't really care about it, um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it means that, you know, I, you know I, I care about the things I'm working on, but it's a bad thing because it means that the things I'm working on have a negative impact on my mental health, I guess, <laughs> in terms of being constantly confused. So, you know, I just, I, I mean, when I don't think about it, I'm kind of okay, right? Uh, when I think about it, I'm, it's not like it's bad, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm kind of like, caught in some sort of um, crisis all the time. It's just, I get upset <laughs> about things very easily. I think in today's world as well, you're kind of, with everything that's happening at the minute in, in terms of the, the state of the world, it's very easy to, to fall down those rabbit holes. Like it's kind of being thrown in your face constantly, all this horrible stuff that then prompts those thought patterns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the stuff I, I am doing right now in, in philosophy is very much related to this kind of questions, right? So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about um, things like trust and disagreement and social knowledge, right? So how do we know in, in social frameworks and communities? So they're very much kind of like questions that are prodded by things happening all the time around us. I think there's a reason for that as well. You know, I, th- I think that the music that we've, we've done, at least the first album, was very much came from the same place of anxiety, not necessarily just mine, but everyone's, you know? So in a sense, it's interesting because both of these avenues that I personally at least care about, even though they don't look like it from the outset, they're, they're, they come from the same place and they're just different ways of voicing the same anxieties. Yeah, like what, one's an artistic expression of it and one's kind of a direct communication of it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think they're both just saying, here's what I think is going on and here's how I think we should solve it, right? I, it's just that the music is it's done in more of a raw and primitive way, maybe, as in it's just unfiltered feelings and emotions that carry the work. Whereas in philosophy, it's exactly the opposite, like meticulous, you know, surgical scrutiny. But it'd be, it could be interesting, though, then, how you take the perspective of something like the, the kind of scrutiny of philosophy and apply it to the music. Though. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, that 
that actually I think we did for a long time. And something that some people were, it's, it's, it's what you call pretentious, right? Like it's, it's kind of like the idea that, you know, a bunch of 20 year olds can create a concept album or, or something, which, which is philosophically influenced, right? Like, I, you know, I think there's good reasons to worry about that and think it's a bit up its own ass, I guess. But I really don't think we tried to do it that way. Like, it's not like we, we sat around, we said, how do we make a smart, you know, album, right? Like, it wasn't like we're trying to say something smart. It was just like, we were all just anxious. And I think, especially like me and Henry, were talking a lot about these things throughout, throughout the time we've known each other. Uh, I think that that just found its way in. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to necessarily say that, like, it was a, it was a calculated process doing that. It's just, it, it happened. It so happened. Yeah. I think the fine line with things being pretentious is that as long as it's coming from a place of honesty like you saying something that feels natural and organic and isn't trying to be smart like in a clinical way if it comes across pretentious but you do it organically you get away with it if you know what i mean because it's true to you so people detect the honesty in it and you can it doesn't matter yeah but i think i think there's an added caveat to that which is i think it it, it can be honest right and it can come from from that place that doesn't necessarily for me at least make it necessarily like worthwhile or you know, not liable to be scrutinized. I think the other factor that, that distinguishes it is like something like narcissism, right? If it's honest, but it's kind of saying, look, we figured it out, right? Like we're the smart ones that you're not, and we're gonna, you know, we've kind of got it here, either musically or philosophically or, or anything really. Um, but in particular, in terms of music, when, when it kind of like comes across as attempting to be highbrow, I think if it's coupled with this narcissism, then you should be in trouble, right? Because you're, kind of preaching in a way that I don't think is, is what art should be doing, really. So I'd add that, and I'd, I'd say that I would regret if we've done that um, at points. I think we have done it at points. Not necessarily not in the album, but in our attitude. So, you know, that's something that I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not personally cool with anymore. I don't think it's a good artistic ambition. At what point do you kind of get the perspective where you can look back and maybe spot that out at certain points? How long does it kind of have to be between writing it and, and gaining that clarity? I don't know, you know, because for me, it, 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 it happened. I don't know how, to what extent that was contingent on the fact that the world stopped, right? So the world stopped, I think, and that gave a lot of people a lot of hindsight on a lot of things. If that hadn't happened, if we carried on as usual, maybe I wouldn't have spotted it, right? Maybe I wouldn't have reflected on it in this way. So. At least what I can say is this time around, at least for me, it was very much a result of having had like the world stopping in a way in which you can really reflect and change as a person and able to reflect on certain things in this way. I feel that the world stopping as well, though, accelerated quite a lot of personal growth within people. So it might have been something that you maybe noticed two years down the line, but as a result of the world stopping, you know, it it sped up that process of coming to those conclusions. Yeah, everyone I've spoken to at least seems you know, to be, to be caught between, between a place of despair and just enlightenment, actually. Like, it's, it's, very, it's very much a binary these days, you know? No, I, don't, I don't remember when the last time I asked someone, like, how they were, and they were like, yeah, I'm doing okay, you know? It's, it's either like, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing horrible, or, you know, I found God. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that, that that kind of does polarize things. And I think it's useful, right? Because I don't think you can find God if you you know, quote, God here in quote, quotes, of course. I don't think you can do that if you're not like despaired first. So, you know, it might be good in the long term. Let's see. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes that enlightenment comes when you're at the lowest low. Yeah. I think all the time, you know, why else would you seek it out otherwise? You know, there's not, there's not much reason if you're doing okay to like change and transform. You have to have some reason to do that. And usually that reason is just you, 
really unhappy with with where with with how you see yourself at a given point in time. And I think that is what happened to a lot of people, right? I think a lot of people have struggled with with dealing with that. I have for sure, you know. And it's about whether or not you're re- you're ready to, to to you're ready to take a leap that you don't know where it's going to lead you, right? If you change radically, maybe you're going to end up worse. You don't really know that. You don't really know that before you change, right? So it's kind of a hard bet. You mentioned a little while back that you've been looking at like changing uh, social structures in your work as well at the minute. Is that like death of religion and that kind of stuff and the transition away from that as a society? Um, or what, what sort of stuff is that kind of entailing? So maybe it comes from that, but that's not how I phrase it. Right? That wouldn't be appropriate uh, in terms of philosophical like rigor. rigor. The way I see it is like there's been a collapse of, of, of consensus, right? The fragmentation of consensus, which is that we no longer believe in the legitimation and the myths that legitimate the institutions around us, right? So either uh, be, be, be the electoral system right? or, or expert testimony or, you know, the news or even science. Uh, there's, there's been a slow erosion of the central role they play in, in, in which the majority of people take these things to be tr- trustful, you know, test- testifiers. So that's, that, that has kind of broken down. And I think the consequences that are like pretty serious. I, I think that that's something we touched upon with the album, obviously not in these terms, right? But the same point really came across. But I think we're seeing that unfolding. And, and the problem really is you can't really know if you're on the right side or not in terms of, of who to trust anymore. Like that's the, the point. The point is not just that people lost trust, that people lost the ability to know, to appeal to, to, to like third party independent reasons to know who to trust. So it's a much deeper wound in this sense. Is there any way back, do you think? Is there a way that we can refine that trust or is it something that's gone for good? I don't think there's a way back. There might be a way forward, right? You know, so usually what happens, consensus fragments, um, you just have a new one emerging from a new myth, right? So a new legitimation happens and uh, the paradigm shifts. Um, and then people just come around together again. Usually the thing that, makes that happen is, is just violence, right? It's like raw violence in which that, what, that's, what, that's what revolutions come from, right? And that's what creates the necessary conditions for the emergence of a new consensus. Like, you know, we won the war, therefore you now believe in this institution that this means, because otherwise, you know, we're going to kill you. So that's the big worry. Right? The big worry is that in order to move forward, there might need to be a radical or there might need to be, like I'm not saying, I don't like to use normative terms, but there, there, might, there might be necessary for there to be something like that happening. I hope not. I really, really hope that that won't have to be the case. But I can't see any other way, uh, except for some sort of new institutions arising which are able to garner trust in a, wider, in, a wider, in a wider way, some sort of transparency and honesty that hasn't been here for the last 30 to 40 to 50 years. Uh, this would be good things. It's a tough thing to achieve in this world of kind of fake news where transparency is something that is going to be tough to exist now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? And I don't think, I don't think the problem is fake news per se. I think the problem is just the amount of news. You can't distinguish between who is trying to convince you what and why. That's the main problem. Um, for me, I think fake news is overused as a term, right? Like it, it, people call fake news whatever they don't agree with or whatever that doesn't match their interests. Um, of course, there are clearly cases where the news are fake, but there's also cases where that's not what's driving the problem. The problem is, is 
you don't know who to listen to when you have two people saying you're telling you different things who both appear to you to be trustworthy. And there's just so much more of that happening nowadays. Uh, you know, maybe there could be a way, not in the news sector, but, but in, uh, in other institutions, like elections, for example, in which you can employ technological solutions, right? So technology doesn't require human trust. It just is trustless. So, you know, various distributed systems now don't require you to be able to trust every individual who's in them in order for you to trust the system itself because it has ways in which it, it is able to produce consensus without, without trust. So that would be a solution for that. But that's not necessarily able to be applied into our social institutions, so stuff like news. There you have a much bigger problem. I mean, the one way I think that they should do is I think that they, they need to, you know, the kind of platforms that people use for, for information sharing now, they, they have to become, they, they can't be private anymore, I don't think. The platforms themselves. So things like Twitter and Facebook, I think, being private and being liable to, you know, choices made by uh, CEOs and COOs in terms of what can go on, what can't go on, what's to be promoted and what isn't to be promoted. I think this, this creates a very big conflict of interest and a lot of distrust and misinformation. So I think you have to kind of like make these things public forums in a way. They have to be like outside the reach of the markets in order for them to be able to, 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 to foster the possibility even. Of, of trust. Do you think they would be able to regain it if they did that? Look, I mean, if you think about something like the BBC, which is supposed to be this kind of, you know, public funded body that is not, you know, non-biased, but it still seems to have something that people, you know, they've, they've lost trust in it as well. Well, I, I guess the difference between the BBC and what I'm saying here is that in the BBC, in order for you to like, you know, post something in the news, you have to be employed by them, right? In kind of like a Twitter of sorts, which was not a private company, but was a, a public space, right? That would mean that everyone go on and say things. And whether or not you are able to say them or not, even in the case of the BBC, that's down to, to a non-transparent process um, by certain... Like, you know, recently they changed their director, right? And he just said that you can't say things, um, your political opinions on Twitter or stuff, stuff like that, right? That was a decision of one person or one, one group of people. And, you know, who are they accountable to? Well, not, not necessarily to the taxpayer, at least not directly to the taxpayer. So you'd have to, you'd have to be a much more transparent and collaborative system. Now, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have neither the expertise or the intelligence to be able to make policy recommendations for that. But it just seems to me like it would look different from the BBC, um, but it would probably be closer to the BBC than, than to like, you know, Zuckerberg's friends deciding um, what you're going to look at tomorrow. What do you put your, your faith in and your trust in in general then? Is there anything left in your life that you can kind of put that in? Or are you in the same position as everyone else where we kind of have this breakdown? I really hope that after this whole thing ends, there will be like a resurgence of just empathy and, you know, like missing people. Like I really miss people in, in, in terms of just, you know, meeting people and talking to them, like just that interaction. I think maybe like the fact that we've been kind of like robbed of it now might mean that we value it more later. And when, if we value that, like if we're able to empathize with individuals on that level, I think maybe that will lead to a, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that all this stuff's happening and amplified more in times where we're locked in our rooms, right? Like people are no longer people, they're just like avatars and then text. Um, so it's hard to empathize with that. So I hope after this is done, maybe, maybe there will be an opportunity for, you know, I don't, not in the utopian way of like everyone coming together and like holding hands, but more just like to rebuild and find ways out of our own heads and our own filters. I mean, it can be frustrating as well, because I remember when this all kind of kicked off, 
it felt like this could possibly be the thing that was going to, you know, unite everyone together. You know, this one kind of one big problem that affected every country in the world, affected every person, and kind of could possibly unify everyone. But then it seems to have just split us further apart in a lot of ways and kind of pushed everyone into their own separate camps and everyone's kind of, you know, rallying against each other. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm being unduly pessimistic here. Um, but again, like, I, I never really bought that becoming the other thing because on the physical space we were we were like separated and isolated apart right so how can you hope that that would happen so i just hope when when the physical space is restored in this way maybe that will be a different story then but i'm not you know again i'm i am very i'm a pessimist generally speaking um i'm pessimistic about this as well i'm just saying that there is there is a sliver of hope there i mean what we've just been been speaking about that's kind of very much something like you said it does feed into the record if you think about you know the opening track the west is dead that's something that kind of paints this picture of a landscape that is probably quite reflective of where we kind of are at the moment to a certain degree yeah i mean you know it's funny it's i it is a funny to me that we released this album like one month and a half and a week before lockdown right like friends of mine were like you guys kind of you know you called it right and I, i'm not saying we did but I, I did expect the dystopia that we're describing to be a bit further away than a month and a week from when we released it. I was hoping for at least a couple of years, but that, that didn't happen. So, you know, I mean, maybe that's indulgent, but I did listen to the album a few times in lockdown. I was like, this, this does sound like it. This is how this sounds like. So I was, kind of, I was quite proud of that. Maybe if we released it a bit later, a month and a week later, maybe we would have gotten more streams, but that's... You know, that's that's fine. When was the last time you heard the record? I can probably find out and tell you. <laughs> uh, I think, oh, I remember, a couple of months. So so that was uh, late, late October was the, first, the last time I listened to the record in a bus journey. Well, how did that, what, what was that experience like for you? Were there, did it change your perspective on it slightly? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard it before that for a long time. I think it was probably around since release, um, but I hadn't heard it before that. So I think I, I, think I listened to it once on release day uh, on, or the day after. So, you know, it was like six, seven, eight months after. Um, so I, I listened to it a bit more like a listener rather than someone who was part of it. I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty nice. Um, there were obviously a lot of things I would change, you know, like tons of them. I would change the order around a bit, even though... I think the order was my idea mainly. I will change that around a bit. You know, some technical things here and there as well. But you can't really, you know, it's not, I don't think it's good to think like that. So I didn't really think about that a lot. It's interesting that you would change the, the order because there is quite a distinct narrative to it, you know, kind of from song to song feeding into each other and the way they set. Yeah, no, that, that was very intentional. Um, but it was just, I, ugh, I'm trying to remember what I wanted to change. Oh, towards the very end, I think. I would have liked for Blank Slate to be the closer and to have Orders looming. Maybe, you know, maybe like, a, like three minutes of silence and then it happens kind of thing. Because I, I, it didn't, I don't think it was clear that that was the epilogue. Um, it, people were like more like, this is the closer, but it's not the closer. And I think that, that that makes a difference. So, you know, maybe that's not necessarily changing the order around. Uh, but I would, I would have at least conceptually tried to push it more. You know, if, if vinyls had three sides, then that would be on the third side. But obviously vinyls are two-dimensional objects, at least in terms of how many sides they have, so that wouldn't be possible. Blank Slate is kind of such a joyous, optimistic note to finish on, whereas War is Looming kind of counteracts that a little bit and takes it full circle. Yeah, so I think that's fine. I think that's a good thing. That was the idea. The idea was like, we don't, I don't want to end this on, pessimism, on optimism. You know? I think it'd be better to like be a bit sad at the end because it's a, 
it's a sad, it's, it's a tough record. So, but I just again, I, I, it's not that it comes after. It's like the thing that comes after the like you know, and when you see movies and you see like the the credits, like it's the after credits thing. So I just I don't think necessarily that 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 came across that way. Um, I think so. I don't know how to do that really on, on an album. I think it's really hard to do that on an album because I think it's really cheesy to have like minutes of silence before the last song. But you know that 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 yeah that kind of I wanted to go full circle, but I I wanted there to be more of a pause. I guess. How do you feel having the album be so narratively coherent in that way affects the emotional impact of each individual song upon the listener? Well, I think this these songs, right, and the kind of songs that we did, I you know they're quite frantic and confusing. I think it's important for them to be contextualized in their place in a wider work. So I think it's really kind of like one of these things, you know, that's like an old, you know, an old idea, maybe, maybe a bit outdated, but I do think this is an album you should listen to as an album. I don't really think you should like make a playlist and put a song in there. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't, like anyone can do whatever they want, but the songs are much better when they're heard in relation to each other. So, you know, I think it definitely gives it, yeah, I think it definitely gives it a, a it gives the songs meaning and a purpose, right? Because there is this like very intentional movement from each one to the other. There's this, uh, this formal and also lyrical evolution and devolution at points. So all these things, I think, add, just add to them. Um, if we weren't thinking about that, I think the songs by themselves could have been better, but that would sacrifice the album, right? So I think it's better as an album rather than as individual songs. I guess when you spend four years working on it as well, you kind of want it to be this coherent, cohesive thing. As a because I mean, you spent your whole life writing individual songs, but you've never kind of made this grand statement before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny though, because you know, we never when we started writing it, it was never the idea that was like it. It didn't start again with us around the table saying, "Here's here it is, guys. Figure it out. We're gonna write an album that's about this and that. It's gonna have this kind of songs in it." You know, we first wrote some of the songs, and then we wrote others of the songs, and then we figured out how to put them together. I think that it was just unspoken, the idea that there would be a, a narrative there. But it was there. Like, I, I know it was there. It didn't just, it wasn't arbitrary or come about randomly. It was there from the, from the beginning, but we just couldn't see it for ourselves until later on in the process. So until like the last year, I guess, of us doing it. Yeah, also like we kind of did the album twice, right? Like we, we did one, one run through with Sony in uh, June 20. What, 2018 or 19? Would have been 18. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah, you're right. 2018, we did one run through and then we tossed most of it. The vast majority of it was like thrown to the bin after that. And then we took a long break and then we, we came back together and we did the second um, run through, I guess. That also helped in terms of figuring out what we're trying to say because I don't think we're saying much with the first one at least. Although a lot of the songs are there as well, but it was just, this wasn't in the same, you know, the same thing. With that break you took, was that a break from making the record or was that a break from the band at large? Uh, the band was still going on. We just, you know, so that was after, after uh, we separated from Sony, which happened in September, 2018. You know, we didn't have a label for a while. So obviously we didn't have any money coming in. didn't have any direction in terms of like what we're supposed to be doing. So we kind of just paused for a little while, not that long. We started again shortly thereafter, um, but just by ourselves. So we didn't have a label for a while. And then we found a label who funded the third part which was like the kind of like finishing touches of a couple of three four songs that we just added from scratch uh and like all the other all the other stuff 
So, you know, this, this first three months, I guess we just didn't meet with each other as much because like we were also busy with, with, with like jobs and uni because we resumed these things um, necessarily out of, you know, necessity as well. So yeah, I guess it was both, both, both a break. Well, not really a break from the band, but we just didn't meet that much. Was, was the atmosphere of the two processes quite different for, like for the group? Was it when you took that break in between, how did the atmosphere change when you oh, came yeah, back it was, to it? It was a massive difference. I mean, the first, the first, the first part, I wasn't happy. Um, I don't think many of us were. It was a really, you know, toxic environment, not necessarily because of the people in it, but because of the context, right? So you had like the label kind of coming in and saying, you know, this is what you guys should be doing. This is the, how the song should sound like. This is what the lyrics should be like. Um, we were in an expensive studio with a very expensive producer. And it was more like, it felt like a grind for someone else. Uh, I felt like, you know, we were fulfilling a contract, which is exactly what we're doing, right? We were like doing a job for someone. Uh, commissioned us to a record that was supposed to make the money, hopefully profit them by some margin over the amount of investment put in. So it felt very much like that. Um, but, you know, so it felt like a corporate job, but instead of us being a corporate structure, where it's like, you know, an HR person or like a CEO or whatever, it's like sick people just shouting at each other. So you have the worst of both worlds, right? And I think at the time we were also very narcissistic. We were very impressionable and young and like really up our own asses uh so that also took its toll there were like internal divisions etc and then when the when son just left like all of it just dropped right it was like okay whoa there's there's you know all this like false dreams just kind of like pop and vanish and that was great because then we came together and we're like let's just like do a record that we like um in your bedroom um because that's you know why not right like that we have the songs and we like making music so let's just do that instead so we did that, and that was that was pretty great. I mean, there was no aim there to like sell millions of records. There was no aim to, you know, fulfill some sort of contractual obligation. We didn't really, you know, we weren't touring. We, we didn't really feel like very connected to like, you know, fans or anything like that. So it was just like five, six people just trying to, you know, make something meaningful. So that's that was very different, uh, and much much better, I think. Yeah, sounds like it's coming from a completely different place. Yeah. You know, obviously at the expense of other things, right? Like, so, you know, commercial success, which, which you know, obviously people kind of uh, look down on, but it's, you know, it's a compelling promise. You know, um, being told that you can sell loads of records and be really famous and make a lot of money, that's, that's a compelling promise. And then anyone who thinks otherwise, I think they're lying to themselves. Like, it's not like, you know, you have to do it. We didn't do it out of choice. Initially, not of choice. Initially, we were forced not to do it. And then we were really happy we were in a way, but that's, that's, that's like, you know, that's, that's very, very attractive. It's a very attractive option. And I think we were all sad for a while that this was no longer possible. How old were you when you signed with Sony? I think I was, well, I was just out of uni. So 20. Yeah. Yeah. That's young. Yeah. And uh, the other, the other guys were like 19. Some of them were 18 as well. So, you know, we was, it was, we have we had no clue, like with no clue. It was, you know, not like I'm much older. I mean, I'm 25 now. I guess I do feel more mature. But at the time, you know, it was just insane. Uh, straight out of uni, and then you just get handed this multi-thousand, hundreds of thousands pound deal and all these promises of, like, you know, worldwide success. And it's like, okay, that sounds pretty good, actually. I'll take that, right? And then, and then you, get, you get, like, accustomed to the idea and you get, like, fed uh, and inflated. Your ego gets so inflated by these people because that's how the, that's how the job works right they want to like prop you up so that you can you can deliver because you're like you know this idea of like the band being like really cool and and um 
you know, super sexy and all that stuff. So, so that was an art that was going on through. And I think that, I think that like really ruined our brains for a while, right? In terms of just creating conditions for like, well, narcissism, which I don't think is a good thing. And I think that the seeds were there before that. And it kind of were amplified by, by this experience. I don't think that's a good thing to do to an 18 year old. And a lot of people who actually go through with that and do like become very successful, uh, really struggle with these things, I think. How did that experience change your worldview and your kind of perspective and outlook on the world? Well, I mean, it, 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 like, it, it's a big reason as to why I have the world you have now, right? Like it's, it's really hard to disentangle, first of all, exactly how I did that, but it definitely was a crucial factor in shaping me, right? Like I wouldn't be who I was if this hadn't happened. I guess if I, if I can try to be a bit specific and say that the one thing it did was reveal the vacuousness and the like emptiness of a lot of these institutions and systems, such as major label and music industry, how they are full of just like hot air and extremely corporate entities, which is something maybe you know from before, right? But like experiencing it is different because it's always this this feeling at the back of it, like, you know, the people I'm working with, they, they care about music. Obviously they wouldn't be, you know, A&Rs working labels who didn't care about music, truly care about music, but it doesn't matter because once it happens in this corporate structure and framework, that slowly disappears. So you end up with, you know, really caring about numbers. And there's nothing wrong with caring about numbers. If you want to do entertainment or if you want to make money, that's fine. But it's, I think it's impossible to, to, to do like art in that context. So I guess, you know, I guess the way it changed me is to just really be forced to, you know, see early on for myself what the kind of different ways of approaching the world are. One of them being like that sort of ruthless, formal arithmetic way of seeing the world. The other one being the more like idealistic way of viewing the world and kind of like the consequences that, that come from each of these ways. Like I think they both have consequences and I don't think it's entirely clear even to me now if one of them is intrinsically superior to the other, right? I don't think it's clear to me that, you know, doing things in the former way is necessarily worse than doing things in the latter way or doing things in the latter way is necessarily worse than doing things in the former way. It's really, it's, yeah, it's, and there's so much contempt, I think, from both, from both like aspects, right? A lot of, you know, major label artists and major label funds are like, yeah, you know, there's like artsy kids who make like cool music and experimental music. I mean, fine, but it's not nothing great. And they're like, kind of like justifying their lack of ability to make pop songs. And they really also just want to make money and they're, they're just lying about it themselves, right? On the other hand, you have more of the experimental kind of like artistic side of, of music, yes, in general, more general of life, kind of like saying that, you know, the former side is just sellouts and they are just like sold the souls and just to make money. I don't think either of them is entirely right. I don't think either of them is entirely wrong. Um, but at least I saw both of them for myself, I guess, in a way. And that was very useful. What do you judge your success upon now then? If you've, kind of, if you've moved away from looking at it from a kind of numbers point of view that maybe was kind of pushed upon you by the label, what is it that you, your music has to do for you now to be successful? I'm just, I'm just really happy that, that I, I like the record. I mean, that's it. Literally, that's it. You know? It's, no, look, so it's always nice when you see, you know, today the, the, the Spotify warp thing came out, you know, like when they tell you end of years. So it was nice to see that we have, you know, a fair number of streams and we have a fair number of listeners and that's very nice because it means people care. But at this stage, that's just an like afterthought. The main thing is I'm just really happy that the album I released, we released together, meant something to us and I, I just like, I think, it's, I think it's a good record. But I'm saying that from a position of privilege because 
I have other sources of income right now, so I don't need this as a source of income, right? But if I did need this as a source of income, as a source of income, I would, I think, I would be very, you know, I think I would have different priorities. And that's the thing about music, right? Like people pay the rent, and if they're spending their whole day making music, it's hard to do that well and be able to pay your rent. It's just really hard, and some people manage to do it, but it's just really hard. So I understand the people who have different priorities as well. I think that's completely, that's completely fair. Do you prefer your relationship to making music when it is a source of income or when it isn't? Because it's, it's been, I mean, I presume were you guys on an advance for a while, so was, was there a period where you were able to rely upon this fully as a source of income? I mean, yeah, the first, the first three years, um, we were fully relying on the source of income, which is like absurd, I think, to hear it happening this time around. And with us as well, like no, not kind of like a, you know, a super popular band, but we were able to live off this for three years. I prefer making music when it's not a source of income, personally. I'm not sure I'm as good at it when it's not under certain metrics. I think I'm better at it when it's not under other metrics, but it's definitely more enjoyable. I think it's probably true for everything. <laughs> you know, if you don't need it to make money, then you're probably going to have more fun doing it. Yeah, you take that pressure off of it. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you know, that also is a bad thing because when the pressure's off, you know, it's more likely you're going to be a bit sloppy or you're not going to put all your attention in it. At least for some people. I don't know, I'm generally very lazy, so for me, maybe that's, that's the case. But in terms of the actual process, uh, comparing the two, I think definitely when, you know, it was not necessary for me to be able to survive, that I enjoyed it more. You know, when you went through the, the, the process with Sony, well, the kind of whole major label thing and in the way that they kind of commodified it in that way and you go through this commercial infrastructure... We, we live in an age now as well with social media and stuff that almost every aspect of yourself has to be commodified and has to be turned into to help promote the music. Are there certain aspects of yourself that you've kind of realized and that you feel important or that are important to not commodify and kind of just keep for yourself? It might sound funny, but I wasn't a big fan of like, you know, like photos and photo shoots and stuff like that. So all of that kind of like being used to sell things, I always find really awkward and weird. I'm not sure if everyone else in the band shares that opinion with me. Also, like, you know, the whole idea that, you know, they were, I guess, trying to commodify the attitude or like the kind of like the, the, the you know, even now maybe like the, the ideology behind or the ideas behind it were like sold as like, you know, as a, as a product as well. Like here's, here's like a cool millennial view into how the world's really dark. Um, you should probably buy this, you know, like that's not, that's not, I don't think that's nice per se a lot of interviews for example you know kind of like felt like they were used to sell the record as well no stuff like this like more like like those 10 minute five minute like press packs that you do after shows or whatever where you say the same thing over and over and you end up feeling a bit like it doesn't mean anything anymore because you just keep on saying the same thing and you know what you're saying as well you're saying because you want to get people interested but you know all these things are necessary so i i I, I'm trying to be very uh, pragmatic about these things. I don't want to come across as saying that, you know, this is bad and, and, and the market, the market, the music industry is like bad and it's a bad thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's nice when people listen to your music and how are you going to get people interested in your music by like, you know, doing photo shoots and doing interviews and things like that. It's, it's just hard when that happens in cases where you're just trying to make something that's is better when it's purer, I guess, in a way. But it's not like, it's not really bad. It's just kind of annoying, I guess. It's a delicate balance in some respects between the two. Yeah. I guess the problem is when the balance is off, right? And that's when the real problems are. Like, that's where, that's where I, can, I can't say that when the balance is off and the balance was off for us for a while, that's when things just end, end up being bad. So I guess that the industry nowadays doesn't really care 
you know, for their own good reasons, doesn't really care for, for the right kind of balance for artists. And that ends up hurting them and the art they make. With Loaded, you know, when you take that entire experience that we've kind of just been discussing and condense it into a song, did you have an idea? How did, what was the kind of idea in your head for how you wanted to go about doing that? Because you kind of condense it into almost making it one event. Like, you, you know, you take something that's had the time span of a few years and put it into this one, mm. this one place, this idea of, you know, meeting someone and selling your soul to the devil. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it had a few iterations before it was what it was. It was not always about that. I don't know, I mean, Henry wrote the lyrics, right? We talked about it beforehand, but he wrote the lyrics. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, I think it was just like that feeling, that story, yeah, in the song, you know. I, I guess it, it was a pretty a short moment, actually. It wasn't the whole time. It was like the, just the moment of signing, right? That's what it's about, in a way. So just one small event that the song is about, in a way. And things around it. But, you know, if, if, if I could, you know, say after the fact, you know, and with hindsight, what it sounds like, it just sounds like probably what was going on in our heads as we were signing the thing. You know, it's funny because uh, before, long before Loaded, after like, after, the, after we signed first and, you know, early on in the Sony days, um, I went back home for like summer or Christmas or something. And my dad like asked me very seriously, like, are they devil worshippers? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, they're not. You know, don't worry. It's, this, is, this, is not, <laughs> this is not how it goes. But he's like, you know, where do they get all the money? And you know, he's very confused about the whole idea, like of us kind of like blowing up early on, getting all this money. And, um, so he was actually, I think, generally worried that we did sell our soul to the devil. I don't think we did. I think we did metaphorically speaking. But I don't think we actually did. I really hope we didn't actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it comes to the, the, the songs in, gen, in general, is it usually the narrative that kind of comes first? Or is it, do you have an idea of the themes you want to work with? Do you have discussions about the type of things that you want to address in your music? Or is it very much, you know, Henry, maybe come to the band with the lyrics and you kind of build the soundscape around it? Yeah, it's like the latter. It's, 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 so first of all, I think that our discussions figure in the songs very prominently, but never explicitly, which I think is a good thing. As I said before, we don't sit around and say, you know, let's make a song about, you know, the, the end of the Western civilization. It's more like we talk about that stuff for a while, um, you know, in terms of like a moment, like when we have like, you know, in the tour van or, or when we're hanging out or when we're, you know, socially hanging out, we talk about these things. And I think they just find themselves in music um, very naturally and organically. Uh, in terms of the actual songwriting and making, it really varies. Sometimes it's like Henry comes up with a lyric or a lyric and a melody, or sometimes like we just do an instrumental first and then Henry comes and sings on top firstly impromptu and then we work on it after that or a combination of the two. So it's really like a very flexible and varied process. Um, but as I said earlier, like these days, it's more in smaller numbers. So I haven't, well, because of lockdown as well, I haven't really worked on music for about a month now, I'd say. Um, and I won't be able to do anything this week either. Um, hopefully next week I'll, I'll, I'll work on, on it a bit. But yeah, it's, it's, much, it's much more lenient right now. We used to be like all of us, 10 hours every day, six days a week. Like that was how it was to be. It was kind of insufferable. Maybe that will come at the cost of, I mean, maybe the album won't be as good. I don't know. Hopefully it will be, will be better, but it's, yeah, slightly different now. Was that 10 hours a day, six days a week? Was that kind of in a bid to hit the 10,000 hours or what was feeling that kind of drive to be working at it so relentlessly? Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I just think we're, we're, you know, it was like, well, I mean, Yuki's a workaholic, I think. So he, just, he does that anyway. That's kind of like the kind of hours he works. And there was just like this big sense of like, you know, we got this really big opportunity here. Let's make it worth it. Let's just get in there and like not slack around and just like, which I think was actually ended up being counterproductive, right? Like, cause we did spend four years on it. <laughs> it's not like, you know, 
the more time we put in something, the better it is in a surrogate as the other way around. Um, so I just think it took us a while to see that. On the other hand, I think we developed other things, right? Like maybe we didn't write as many songs in this time, but we kind of got to grips with how we work with each other and actually also playing our instruments because in the beginning, at least, we were doing that in a rehearsal room and we're just there like playing all day. So, you know, that was probably a good thing. In that sense. I guess the story as well, there can be a certain naivety that kind of creeps into the music from not knowing like fully, fully what you kind of want to do. No, well, not what you want to do. Yeah, a naivety that comes from, you know, just experimenting and that kind of energy that you have at the beginning of the band. Like you're saying, that idea of, you know, really wanting to drive at it and work every day at it relentlessly. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, I think a lot of bands like, you know, kind of do that from anyway, right? They start and then they, they work on things for a long time and then they get signed and they release a record. For us, we just happened to be signed very early on in the process. I was in the band for um, like five to six months before we got signed, which is crazy early, right? And this was my first band as well. So, I think it was just a result of having to make up for things that hadn't happened before that usually do happen in cases of bands. Yeah, I guess it was a good thing. Do you ever wish you'd had a wee bit longer before it all kind of kicked off? Yeah, I do. Although, I don't know. I mean, it would be a very different album, I think, for sure. Because I get a lot of part of it is just being thrown into that world really abruptly and just trying to figure it out uh, as you go along. But in terms of my mental health, for example, yeah, I mean, it would have been better to like slowly work your way through uh although it'd be, i don't know it'd be hard to see how that would have worked at the time i was about to do a postgrad at oxford when we got signed so i would have done that if we didn't get signed maybe i I'd prob- i might not have been part of it at all if it wasn't for the early start you know which i think sounds you know saying that makes me feel like i'm a bit ungrateful as well like the idea that you know I'm not necessarily someone who always wanted to be a musician or anything like that. It kind of just happened for me, um, or, you know, almost accidentally. That makes it feel a bit undeserved in a way. But that's the truth, and that's what happened. So I'm glad it happened the way it did. It also probably lends you a slightly different perspective on it as well, though. Like what we were speaking about earlier with your kind of philosophical background, that mm-hmm. as a result of that, you can kind of give something to the music that someone who had maybe been devoted to it for years and years wouldn't have been able to you're coming at it from a different angle yeah maybe maybe i don't know um i really hope so i really hope that like these things help rather than hindered the process i don't know if this album is like a philosophical album per se you know i wouldn't necessarily say that you know it did resonate with that in me and i did feel like that contributed to it but you know it's not like you know it's not like you can't you know write a good album if you haven't studied philosophy right like Probably you can write a better album if you hadn't studied philosophy. So I don't know the extent to which that helped or, or, or didn't. All I know is that it just it was it, it was more honest because of that. It could be in the same way that you're saying, you know, you have discussions about things and you can hear it in the record, but not in a conscious way. It maybe kind of just plays in subconsciously. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the way it would have been. But again, I don't think you need to have a philosophy degree to be able to do that. You know, I just think it just happened that I had one. Does a lot of the process feel quite subconscious? Is there a lot of stuff you think that kind of bleeds in that you're not maybe fully aware of in a conscious way i mean most of it most of it especially in the beginning at least for me is that way and the more like that it is the better it is because otherwise you end up overthinking things so that i think the really conscious part of the process happens later on right so when you have sketches of the songs down when you're just trying to figure out you know how to best mix it and how to like put in uh, what order and how to like finish certain things but in the beginning um the biggest i guess the, the longest part of of the process I think it's very subconscious. It's just like, you know, what feels good and right and what is everyone in the room vibing with and stuff like that. 
which I'm glad, right? Like that's the part of music that I think makes it an art of art generally that makes it distinguished, right? That's what that's why it's not an essay. Otherwise, it you know, otherwise it's it's just a craft or just a you know like a, a, a carefully articulated statement. Um, but what makes it musical is like it flows and ebbs in ways in which you can't you don't want to control. So yeah, I think most of it is subconscious. How much of the the process where you still say remains a mystery to you? It's hard to say because you know. So when you go in and you, at least for me, right, and you try and think about what what here or there or how to contribute to that, a lot of it obviously is a result of things that I've listened before or heard before or thought about before. A lot of it obviously is not that. It's just like things coming together in certain mysterious ways that you can't really predict or understand. I don't know how to differentiate between the two, which I think is why it means that it is actually probably not very understandable. It's because, you know, I think it's hard for me to differentiate between the two. But, you know, I, I, but I don't, I, well, I'd say a big chunk of it um, is something I haven't gotten to grips with yet. At the same time, like the whole, you know, there's so much music theory, right? Like there's so many constraints that are placed upon you trying to make a song work because people have tried this for a long time and they figured out what kind of things work and what kind of things doesn't, don't. And most of the time, the things that don't work will not work. And most of the things that do work will work, right? So it's, you know, you don't really also want to be going in there and within, explicitly with the intention of going against the grain and like abandoning the kind of principles that you know are kind of good, right? That's, that's also a bit immature, I think. But I guess, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about, you know, when you have to pick between the two, when you have to pick between something that's just explicitly unconventional, something that's very conventional, that's where the mystery comes in. It's like you, I at least, or I think we at least do that in a way that we don't entirely understand. So what sounds good and what feels right are not carefully defined terms. They're more vague notions that we appeal to. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.